entering the Freedom Hut. Joe Biden declares Electoral College victory, but fraud allegations continue. Attorney General Barr steps down. Governor Cuomo accused of sexual harassment and the Moderna vaccine. Up next. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Joe Biden taking a victory lap yesterday because the Electoral College has certified his win. And we have to take stock of where we are right now in response to this. And I think that everyone needs to understand there's going to be a lot of frustration here. There's going to be a lot of, of agitation because, yes, we know there was fraud. Yes, we know that the Democrats stacked the deck in their favor with the elimination of anti-fraud safeguards using COVID-19 as an excuse. But the process is continuing on. And with each passing week now, it's favoring Joe Biden. That's that's just an objective reality that we're dealing with. Is there the possibility that there will be some last minute case that something will come up that will be able to finally prove definitively that there was systematic and intentional fraud? The kind of proof that even a weak willed, even a cowardly judge would have to say for fear of shaming his profession or her profession would have to say, yes, you're correct. This is fraud. We cannot certify the results in these states. Yes, it is possible. Is it likely? I think you all know the answer to that. Joe Biden now is feeling like he is inevitable, that this is over. This is done with. We can continue. You know that old you can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can continue to look for that fraud. We can dive into the Antrim County uh, autopsy report from the uh, voting machines, right? The uh, the deep dive that they did. I, I read it last night. I'm curious to see what's going to be done with it. I'm sure the DOJ is aware of it. I'm sure that this is being looked at. Now, being looked at is not the same thing as action taken on, but I, I believe that there are people who are going to read this thing and take a look at whether or not it, it changes the uh, certification in a place like Michigan. But we have to look at that and also understand that Joe Biden is preparing for his administration at this point, and this is likely what we are going to face. And I understand there's going to be heat that I get for this. I understand that people don't want to hear this, but I always tell you that I will speak the truth to you as I see it, and I I believe that this is the objective truth right now. It is a future, uh, it is an issue of of the future. It is a prediction in a sense, right? The future has not happened yet. To borrow from the Terminator films, the future is not yet set, but we need to understand what the reality of the numbers tells us right now and prepare accordingly, including making sure that we focus on the race right ahead of us here in Georgia, because a Biden administration with the House and the Senate in Democrat control is a very different thing than a Biden administration with divided Congress. 
with a divided Congress, they're going to have to prop up this really buffoonish, clownish and yes, corrupt fellow and spend a tremendous amount of time and energy and resources just to make sure the American people don't see for themselves. This is the this is the clown that we've elected. Really? This guy? Now, I know a lot of you would say you didn't elect him, but if he becomes president, then he is technically the guy. And so we look at this now and we say, what can we do in preparation? What can we do to get ready for this? Well, I can tell you this much. A lot of what they were saying about Trump will be true or would be true about a Biden administration. A lot of it would be accurate. For example, when they talked about state media under Trump, they would say this. They really would only say this as a knock on Fox News. And I was consistent in pointing out that state media would indicate that there's only really one acceptable media point of view. I mean, true state media, some places have a government, a kind of quasi government or government organ. But usually if there's an actual state media apparatus, the opposition is at a minimum uh, tiny. Right. The opposition is small. In this country, we had the opposite. We had 95 percent of journos out there. 95% of them anti the administration and they advanced their careers despite what they said, despite what Jim Acosta would pretend when he'd go to the White House. You know, they were not doing the the journalistic equivalent of storming the beaches of Normandy. They were advancing their careers. They were becoming more famous. They were fattening their paychecks. So in no way whatsoever, in no way do we see this now and have any reason to believe that Joe Biden will be anything other than Absolutely coddled and propped up and assisted by the media. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to hear a lot of empty rhetoric from Biden himself, but also from the people around him, because this is going to be the most incredible emperor has no clothes situation you've ever seen. The emperor is too old, he's incompetent, and he's corrupt. But they're going to tell you that this is great. There's going to be this amazing restoration of America that happens. You know, that's a fraud. You know, that's not true. The amount of lies that you are likely to be told in the next 90 days alone will surpass anything you've ever seen before. Because now the media doesn't even really pretend there's no objectivity. They picked a team. He's their team. This is what they're going to do. And here's what Biden was saying yesterday. And on the one hand, calling for unity, calling to bring us all together and then trashing Trump. Play 18. By his own standards, these numbers represented a clear victory then. And I respectfully suggest they do so now. If anyone didn't know before, they know now. What beats deep in the hearts of the American people is this democracy, the right to be heard. To have your vote counted, to choose leaders of this nation, to govern ourselves in America. Politicians don't take power. People grant power to them. The flame of democracy was lit in this nation a long time ago. And we now know nothing, not even a pandemic or an abuse of power, can extinguish that flame. Abuse of power. What was the abuse of power again? Bringing lawsuits? Something that they did endlessly and in bad faith against Trump to slow him down. But now the courts are bad. Understand that we are not only going into a post-journalism area with the Democrats, we're also going into a post 
principle era. Whatever they don't like, whatever stands in their way, they'll just discard. They don't have to make any show of really caring what you think anymore. This is about the raw exercise of political power. They think they will have achieved it through this. And look at what they did to get here. Biden's talking about democracy and how beautiful a thing it is now because he likes the outcome for him as it stands so far. The rest of us stand around saying, you guys changed the rules in an election year by hyperventilating about and exaggerating about the threat of COVID-19 only as it pertains, of course, to voting in person, not to having BLM rallies in the streets, not to any number of, of other activities that are Democrat approved. But voting, no, that that required enormous shifts in the actual mail in balloting process and and transforming the process in the year of the election and using it to the absolute maximum advantage. And, and I do at some level blame Republicans who are supposed to be the ones on guard against this blocking this. I, I blame them for not doing more in advance, for not seeing this train coming down the tracks. Why do you think Pelosi and the other libs? We're going all out with the crazy post office conspiracy over the summer. So that's something that now we have to learn from, I hope, going forward, no matter what, no matter what we end up finding out here about the fraud. I will continue to look at every allegation, every bit of evidence that is presented here by the Trump legal team, by anyone who comes forward and has proof of fraud. We owe that to the country. But we also need to be ready for what is coming now. And you are going to see an administration that has the full and open partisan backing of the social media companies, the entirety of the journalistic media apparatus in its pocket, big government and big uh, business working hand in glove, not shedding any tears for the destruction, the wanton, reckless destruction of small businesses across the country as a result of these preposterous lockdowns. Um, you're not going to see any any tears over that. They like this advantage that they have. The eradication of small business is something that Democrats aren't particularly upset about either. Every business that's independently owned and operated is a little bit of a of a pushback against central planning. So they they prefer that they just have Amazon and Google and these mega corporations calling all the shots and making sure they go in favor of the Democrats. And we're going to be up against an administration that has already shown us. Again, assuming that this pathway continues, but we have to deal with the path that is before us. We're going to have an administration that is already compromised by China, our chief geopolitical rival. They lied about Russia collusion with Trump and pretended that Russia was a much greater threat than it was. But in fact, what they were saying about about Russia is true of China. It has infiltrated our government apparatus. It has been stealing our most sensitive information and secrets for years. And it has compromised the would be first family very directly and very obviously. So this is going to be an enormous challenge. I hope that no matter what President Trump and all of his uh, chief advisors and, and supporters will come together and face this as one. But 
This is where we are. The Electoral College. It is now President-elect Biden as of now. I I understand that you're going to tell me it's a fraud. And I share your sentiment. I share your outrage. But this is where we are now. I've been saying we trust the process. The process is not over, but we are taking stock of this today. We have our work cut out for us, friends. We have a Georgia election to win. We have judges that should be getting at the last minute here, pushed through as many federal judges as possible. I don't know what the heck is going on with the Republicans thinking that they can take it easy. And we have to start to make the argument against what will be a Biden administration that has a lot of support from very powerful people. And you will be told that what you know is not true and what you know isn't so you got to relearn that part of it. Get ready for this, friends. We are in this together. We will eventually win. It's just a question of when. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Four years ago, when I was a sitting vice president of the United States, it was my responsibility to announce the tally of the Electoral College votes in the joint session of Congress that voted to elect Donald Trump. I did my job. And I'm pleased, but not surprised, by the number of my former Republican colleagues in the Senate who have acknowledged already the results of the Electoral College. I thank them. And I'm convinced we can work together for the good of the nation on many subjects. That's the duty owed to the people, to our Constitution, to our history. You know, in this battle for the soul of America, democracy prevailed. We, the people, voted. Faith in our institutions held. The integrity of our elections remains intact. And now it's time to turn the page, as we've done throughout our history, to unite, to heal. Yeah, he sounds like he's in great shape, doesn't he? Everything's going to be just fine. It's going to be a great pres- <laughs> going to be a great presidency, folks. All, all eighteen months or so of it before he decides he's had enough. Although, you know, I will say a lot of us underestimated. You know, I don't think it's fair to say you under. I underestimated Joe Biden. I underestimated the Democrat willingness to put forward a a clownish buffoon, but to create a a package of a Biden administration that they were able to sell to enough people uh, that they thought this was going to be much better. Look, the the Trump derangement syndrome that they spread all that the media spread all across the country, it, it certainly had an effect. I mean, there there were a lot, a lot of people. The fact that Joe Biden, let, let's say Joe Biden cheated. Just theoretically, I don't want anyone to fact check me on this. But let's say Joe Biden had his had his team add a half a million votes to the tally. The fact that this guy still got the 80 million votes, roughly that that he is mind blowing. This clown, this guy whose son is getting spare keys made for him to open up the office where they're going to be peddling influence to the Chinese Communist Party when he's not, you know, getting strippers knocked up and pretending he's not the dad and. Doing all kinds of, you know, I mean, come on, this guy is going to be president. Uh, maybe, maybe. I know it's not until he's sworn in. I mean, I, folks, I just want to know what what will be the at, at what point do you think that it's no longer an issue of having a backbone for the fight to call in the president? Do we do we wait? I, I will ask some folks this because I know today just by me saying I'm trying to take stock of where we are and be honest about this. I know people are going to email me and say that, you know, I don't have enough stomach for the fight or something like that. And I would just want to respond to them. 
what I've been saying fight every step of the way, but at some point, you know, at some point we're the team that's staying behind on the field, at least for this particular game, when the other team is left, they're waving a trophy in the air and the stands have emptied out and the lights, you know, the, the, the field lights are getting turned off. Is it, is it the inauguration day? Do I think that there's going to be an opportunity perhaps to bring action against Joe Biden and against uh, some of the other Demo- some of the Democrats who were involved in Russia collusion, for example, based on the Durham probe? I think it's possible. I wouldn't say it's likely at all. I always tell you no one can predict the future. Obviously, not a lot of us conservatives can. I really believed in my heart that Trump was going to win. And yeah, I think that if only legal ballots were counted, I think that Trump did win. But I can't change this. You can't change this. I mean, I I wish that I had the resources and the ability to go out there and find all this fraud and piece it all together. I'm I'm willing to tell you, though, the people that that are claiming that don't worry, it's still in the bag. There's the plan. Release the Kraken. They're not being honest with you. They're not being straight with you. The, The best, the biggest, earliest Trump supporters that I know, people that I won't name because I've talked to them in confidence, but the ones that I know They'll say offline, yeah, look, this is not it's not looking good, but we fight this to the end. That's where I am. I'm just telling you, let's let's deal with what's ahead of us. Continue to to push, see where this Antrim County uh, audit, the the forensic electronic audit really goes and understand that there's a lot there's a lot that we have here um, that we have to focus on. And I am very concerned about the trajectory of the U.S. uh, versus China under a possible Biden administration now. But, you know, this is this is something that we we have to regain our focus here pretty quickly because they're going to want to hit the ground running. We are weeks away from an inauguration that the media is going to treat as a total reset. And remember, our freedoms are under assault because of covid in ways that are unimaginable. Uh, We have an enormous challenge ahead of us with the Chinese Communist Party. And we've got a buffoon in Joe Biden who's going to be the one calling the shots if this trend continues. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mentioned the Michigan voting machine audit. I just want to say that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was sharing this earlier today. This is what he thinks is going on here. And we should at least follow what the actual commander in chief is saying about all of this. He wrote on Twitter, quote, 68 percent error rated Michigan voting machines should be by law a tiny percentage of one percent. Did the Michigan secretary of state break the law? Stay tuned. And then tremendous problems being found with voting machines. They are so far off. It is ridiculous. Able to take a landslide victory and reduce it to a tight loss. This is not what the USA is all about. Law enforcement shielding machines do not tamper a crime. Much more to come. Okay. well, let's see what the much more to come is. As as I've been telling you all along, I want more information. I want more data, more evidence. There is no there is no part of me that is saying, oh, if we find out, right, think of this almost like a murder investigation. All right. You you can you can know that someone did the murder. You could know that someone did the murder as a law enforcement person, but you can't hold them 
while you're gathering all the evidence. If you if you have not yet, you know, charged them with the crime. Right. You can't just hold them. You're like, well, we think it's you, but we don't have the evidence yet to to go and, and get an arrest warrant. And we don't have that. So we're just going to hold you until we find all of it. No, you got to release the person, even if you know, even if you know that they're probably guilty, but you don't have the proof yet. You got to release them. That doesn't mean, though, you can't come back to it later. So let's see. Let's see what we're able to, to, to pull together here. I've been hearing from people who are not just the Trump legal team, but are independently trying to assess and pull together all the data. You know, remember, it's one thing to show that it's almost impossible statistically for Trump to have lost in some of these places, but almost impossible without proof of the intentional fraud is not going to be enough to get a judge to say that there was cheating here. And that's not the same thing as saying there was no cheating. Right. So this is what I'm, I'm trying to I'm talking about the process and the system and trying to make us all understand what's really happening, what's unfolding before us right now. And it's infuriating. But this is it is what it is. Uh, so Trump is saying that they found these problems. We'll see what ends up happening. And as I've also told you, affidavits not going to be enough. Not going to be enough. You and I can sit here and have a conversation about how affidavits are. These are. Do I believe them? Yes, I do. Do I think that these people are telling the truth? Yeah. But is a judge going to say, well, this person saw a thousand ballots that it's inexplicable how they all went for Biden. But I'm going to invalidate then the hundred thousand ballots that were counted that day at that election site. They're not going to do that. The judge is not going to do that. So as I've been telling you, the uh, the affidavits are, are not enough. And look, I know if, if I'm wrong about any of this, I'll come back and I'll tell you that I'm wrong. I will tell you there are people out there right now who are just squabbling from the tra- from the scraps uh, or for the scraps from the Trump train. And it, it's really just about them. They, they don't there's no interest in in being honest with people because they don't want they don't want the shoot the messenger phenomenon to happen right now. You know, but the Electoral College met yesterday and it is now it is now President elect Joe Biden. That's that's where we are. And I I spit out the words, too, but I appreciate that those of you who are joining me here understand that we got to face this. We got to face it. We can't hide from it, can't run from it. This is what we're dealing with. And you also have the resignation of Attorney General Barr that occurred yesterday. And let me say this. Um, I have been a, a big proponent of the attorney general. I think that he's an excellent legal mind. I think he's a good and ethical man. And I understand there's a lot of frustration right now about both the Durham probe and the election. A few things here. One, he appointed Durham. Durham's the guy running that probe. And, you know, I don't there's no way for the attorney general that I'm aware of to say you need to speed this thing up. That could be considered un- undue interference. That that could be considered politicization. So he handed this off to somebody who's supposed to be a very dogged and thorough prosecutor. What I think a lot of people are finding out is prosecutors are just lawyers. They're just lawyers. There's, there's not some uh, you know factory of of superheroes somewhere that's churning out great folks who will then all become prosecutors, right? There's bad prosecutors, good prosecutors, and so the Durham probe is frustrating, but I also never really believed that they would 
that they would hold to to full account members of the deep state. They're too powerful. There's there's too many connections here among them. And then you have uh, the frustration over over Barr and the election. And I just he's not a judge. And I know this is not maybe a popular thing to say right now, but he's not a judge. What is he supposed to do here? People who say that the DOJ is not looking at these allegations. I have it on. I have it on very good authority that they are looking at these allegations. And they are presenting uh, they are presenting this information up the chain and that. It's exactly what I've been saying. The Democrats removed the safeguards to be able to prove the fraud. So we can keep running around. I understand there's this frustration. People are, it's like they're banging on the wall here saying, but there was fraud. I'm saying, I know, but you have to be able to prove it or judges will not do anything about it. This is where we are. You know, if, if you had a burglary and and somebody and somebody pulled all the of the, the alarms and the and the video cameras out of the room and all of a sudden the you know, the the diamond necklace is gone. You can talk about how it was stolen, but if you can't show any proof, no one's going to prison. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And other people aren't going to tell you that now. They're going to say, oh, the Kraken is just waiting on the side. The no, it's not. It's not. I'm every bit as frustrated as you are. I think the four years of a Trump presidency was going to be four more years was going to be fantastic for us. We're going to have a great 2021 booming economy. Maybe. Maybe we still get it, but not looking good. Uh, not looking good at all. Now, A.G. Barr resigned. Uh, this the, the last thing that the president said about him, I think, should be remembered here because there are a lot of people that are trashing the attorney general. And I, I think there are, there are people who have worked in the Trump administration at a very senior level. Uh, I think there, there are people who were completely incompetent, bad at their jobs and deserve to be fired. I think James Comey obviously deserved to be fired and sent to prison. But here's what Donald Trump wrote yesterday about the attorney general. Just had a very nice meeting with Attorney General Bill Barr at the White House. Our relationship has been a very good one. He's done an outstanding job. As per letter, Bill will be leaving just before Christmas to spend the holidays with his family. So there's the president saying, look, I like this guy and he's stepping down and that's fine. So let's not, you know, he's not some deep state stooge. He's not the enemy of the people or any of this stuff. He probably just realized he's in an unwinnable situation. He's just going to get blamed for things by people who understand that there was fraud in this election. But he has not, you know, the attorney general has not been able to find enough of it, nor have they been able to present evidence in a federal court of it to to change the result. So he's in a losing position and he does. And he just figures, OK, look, have someone else do this. I get it. It's a thankless, a thankless role right now. And I just want everyone to be very clear. The president sent him. This is like being, you know, honorably discharged. The president said nice things about him on the way out. The president doesn't always do that, as you know. Uh, so this is the attorney general saying, all right, I've done what I can. Maybe there's somebody better who can step up and do this. I'm going to go home with my family for Christmas. That's all it is. And I think the attorney general did a solid job. You're free to, of course, disagree with me on that. But I think that overall, the attorney general was an ethical guy. And for those of you who are going to really get mad at me, let me just say Bill Barr was considered a stooge and a hatchet man by the media of Trump until five minutes ago. So something happened here. And it's not that that the, uh, the attorney general all of a sudden became 
some deep state operative, right? That's not what happened. Um, what happened is we've got a very frustrating election result, and there's a lot of blame going around right now, and including the people that don't deserve it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Let me ask you, Governor, there, there was an allegation made over the weekend on Twitter by a former aide of yours who said that accused you of sexual harassment so that it happened over a period of years. Like, I wanted to get your reaction to that. Yeah, I heard about the uh, tweet uh, and what it said about uh, comments that I had made. And uh, it's not true, Zach. Uh, look, I... I fought for, and I believe uh, a woman has the right to come forward and express her opinion uh, and uh, express issues and, and concerns that she has. Uh, but it's uh, it's just not true. So he's calling her a liar. Can we can we just all agree that that's what he is saying, that she is a liar? And I would just prefer it if he would come out and say that instead of playing this game where you have him say, I, 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 I fought for a right to come forward and, you know, to say the things, but uh, turns out that she's a big liar. Uh, look, I, I don't think she's lying at all. And it's, I, I know that you could say to me, oh, but Buck, it's because he's a Democrat and you don't like him and you think that he's, you know, King Cuomo and a maniac. I, I don't like him and I do think he's a maniac and it's terrifying that he might be a, an attorney general under a Biden administration that's already been talked about. I, I find that deeply concerning, but I also am willing to give you my honest assessment of these things. I don't always think that these allegations, even though against Democrats, are true. They do tend to be true more often against high profile Democrats than they are against high profile Republicans. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that there. You have noticed this, but it's not a, it's not an absolute. Uh, but Cuomo is a jerk and Cuomo is a guy who. You can just tell you can tell that he thinks that he can get away with stuff. He's known as a bully. He's known as being vindictive. He's not a nice guy. So, you know, when they accuse Kavanaugh, who is like, you know, Ned Flanders went to Harvard Law School or something or Yale Law School. I forget which one. And, and is like this legal legal supermind who is coaching, you know, girls basketball on the weekend. Everybody loves him. They accuse him of being a serial gang rapist. One of the ugliest, most underhanded and, and disgraceful episodes in, in American politics in my lifetime. And no intelligent person could really believe that those things were true, but they wanted to believe it because they wanted to stop him from being on the Supreme Court. Look what we're seeing. The Supreme Court, e even when you put constitutionalists on the left, and I'm, I'm going to say this and it's annoying, but you got to know the truth. When the left gets one of their judges on, they've got somebody who plays for their team. When the right gets one of their judges on, they've got somebody who adheres to the Constitution. You can see this. The left, dis the left does not disappoint their side. They get what they want. That's what an activist judge means. That's their mandate. Give us what we want, right? Create a living Constitution model where you just decide that you think this is better and the progressives should get their way. For the On the right, constitutionalist judges... They say, look, I don't like this policy or I don't think this is a good idea, but it is constitutional, so I can't do anything about it. You just think about think of big cases. That's what keeps happening. Um, but bring, bring it back to Cuomo. 
So they'll, they'll say that uh, Boy Scout Kavanaugh is a bad guy and, you know, he's a rapist and all this stuff. It's just absurd. And I'm never letting that go. That in some ways was almost as radicalizing and perhaps it was as radicalizing a moment for many conservatives as the Russia collusion lies about Trump. Because it was so, so obviously false and so vicious and um, I'm never going to forget it. Never going to forgive it either. But then you have Cuomo. Here's a guy who is a jerk. And everyone knows it. And he's power mad. And I believe there was actually a domestic disturbance at his house once when he was married and the police showed up and then everyone had to pretend it didn't happen. He shut down the Moreland Commission in a corruption of him just essentially by intimidating and you know scaring everybody. He's a bad guy. He's just a bad guy. And now he's being accused of things that remember she didn't go overboard she wasn't saying oh you know he drugged me and all this other stuff i mean i mean not that that couldn't happen but that would be a bit that would be a pretty extreme allegation she says that he said uh you know sexist comments and talked about my appearance and you know if you look at the woman in question i'm i find it very credible that cuomo would comment on her appearance i don't think that that's a stretch at all and i'm just bringing this up because get ready to kind of stay with our prepare for the battle ahead mentality today. Get ready for the double standards that we saw in a in the first four years of Trump going forward under a, a Biden administration will be just mind blowing. Uh, they won't have any standards except double standards. They will just everything that they've said in the past, whether it's about the grounds for impeachment whether it's about the Me Too movement, women have a right. Women have a right to be believed was the that was the line that was the claim that was made whenever, whether it was Trump or Kavanaugh or any any Republican was accused of anything. And there were some people like uh, Cosby and um, Weinstein who weren't politicians, but were, you know, I guess, Democrats. Weinstein's clearly a Democrat. Who were guilty. And so, yeah, those women did have a right to be believed because they were telling the truth. But now, all of a sudden, when it's Cuomo, they're going to uh, they're going to avoid talking about this story and they're going to take his word for it. And they'll let him get away with the formulation that he gave you there where he's just saying, oh, she has a right to come forward. What, well, what does that mean? We were told that she has a right to be believed. Hillary Clinton said about women coming forward with allegations. They have a right to be believed. And, and now we. When there's a Democrat is in trouble all of a sudden. Now we have a oh, I don't know. I don't know if we can really take that seriously anymore. That standard that we were using to try to uh, eviscerate Republicans. Maybe we need to be a little more thoughtful about how we do this. Maybe we need to be a little more uh, evidentiary in the way that we approach these things. And I sit here saying, wow. No, 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 duh. No surprise, huh? Hmm. And and Cuomo is going to get away with this. There will be no consequences from whatsoever. Uh, Democrat voters in New York State, where I am, at least for now, I, I don't know what it's going to take for them to realize this guy is a nightmare. It, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd, you'd think that at this point they would have figured it out and they want anybody but him. The media loves this guy. They love him. So he can get away with anything. And he's about to get away with the sexual, the sexual harassment allegations, that's for sure. 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What are we really seeing when it comes to the results of these lockdowns? And what has the data told us so far about so many of these expert predictions when it comes to COVID-19 and how we're supposed to handle it? We're joined now by Phil Kirpin. He's a syndicated columnist and also the president of American Commitment. Phil, thanks for making the time. Great to be with you, Buck. Let's talk about schools first. What does the data tell us about school lockdowns at this stage? Or, or, or I should just say school closures. It's not even really lockdowns. Closing schools and doing only virtual learning. Uh, probably the single biggest policy mistake of the entire year, which is saying a lot because we've had a lot of policy mistakes. Uh, it's interesting. The original CDC guidance on schools was really balanced, and I think anyone who actually read it and paid attention would not have closed schools. And yet, we had sort of this panic contagion that swept the whole country, and all the schools were closed, and a lot of them never reopened or opened on very limited part-time schedules. And, uh, and it's interesting. There was a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of weeks ago. They looked at just the impact of elementary school closures and just for two months in the spring and they calculated five million years of life lost uh, from you know two months of elementary school closures which is probably more years of life lost than we're going to have from the coronavirus uh there's a very strong relationship between educational attainment not and not just income but life expectancy as well the difference between a high school graduate and a high school dropout on average is about five years of life expectancy um, the online learning is not working for a lot of people. For some kids, it's fine. Uh, some of them are doing okay, but a lot of kids are failing, a lot more kids than ever failed uh, with traditional school. And uh, that has major long-term consequences, both economic and health consequences. And so we're, we're essentially imposing enormous harms and enormous, enormous costs on children societally uh, even though children are at a near zero risk, a certainly much lower risk uh, with coronavirus than they are from seasonal flu, which is five to 10 times more deadly for children than coronavirus, uh, and that we tolerate and that we think is a perfectly acceptable low level of, of risk. And so children have really been the biggest losers in our policy response uh, to, to COVID. It feels increasingly, Phil, like the elimination of, of any tolerable risk when it comes to COVID has been at the center of, of a lot of the policies that we see. And uh, restaurants in New York City have just been closed as of this week. Contact tracing showed that they were responsible for, they believe, about 1% of the spread. So what, are, what have we learned about where is the virus spreading in New York and its, and its environs? Because that's, that's also a good proxy for where it would be spreading in other densely populated parts of the country. Well, the uh, the data that New York published, and it's interesting because they published, you know, very, very similar data back in May and then ignored it. And now they're finding the same thing again, which is uh, almost all of the spread is inside of homes, inside of households. And, uh, you know, New York, of course, has a lot of high density residential, a lot of multifamily, uh, you know, apartment buildings. And, and uh, so, you know, it may be a little bit different there than some other places, but by and large, I think it's now pretty clear from the contact tracing we've seen all over the country that uh, there's not a lot of spread in places like restaurants and retail and so forth. The, the spread tends to happen, uh, sort of the one-to-one person-to-person spread tends to happen uh, inside of homes. Now, we also have this other problem of 
these occasional sort of super spreader events, which are hard to predict, and we still don't really know why some small percentage of people with this virus, and it's only maybe 10%, something like that, seem to be responsible for, you know, a lot of the spread. And so, you know, you got on the average person who gets this virus infects zero or one other people. And then, but then you've got this small group that infects tons of people. And, you know, we still don't really know what makes them different and why they tend to infect lots of people. And you know, I wish more research were going into that because that would be very useful to sort of identify and be able to predict what those characteristics are. Uh, but by and large, uh, what we saw in the New York did, and it was remarkable because Governor Cuomo came out and he said, look, here's the data, 75% of transmission is in homes, 1% is in restaurants, so I'm closing restaurants. And, uh, you know, then he said, well, you know, because it's something we can do, you know, we can't close homes, we can close restaurants. But of course, just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's actually, you know, he said, you know, it's only a small difference, but it's something we can do, you know, but if you look at the data, Buck, it's more likely to be a negative difference than a positive difference. Because if you say, you know, we're going to push gatherings and holiday gatherings and dinners and all this kind of stuff out of restaurants where people are being very strict with their distancing and their hygiene and all this stuff. We're going to push them out. We're going to close. Now they're going to take place in homes instead. You know, some of them won't take place at all, but a lot of them will take place in homes instead uh, without any of those precautions. And so in my judgment, the restaurant closure is not only economically devastating, uh, but it's more likely to increase transmission than to decrease it because people are going to meet in uh, home settings instead. Well, this was a concern also last winter at the, or late, late in the winter when we recognized that New York City was facing this this first big wave of covid cases. They they went into the the uh, 15 days to stop the spread and the stay at home orders. And a lot of people are saying, well, hold on a second. We've had this virus is all over the place already and now what you're going to be doing by shutting down the schools, shutting down anywhere for people to places for people to go is you might actually be forcing. And you mentioned multi-generational, multi-family homes, dense housing, uh, which is all over New York City, where people it's very difficult to really stay far away from others. It may have effectively sent everyone home to infect their family members inadvertently. But that that was always a concern. Yeah, I think that uh, that almost certainly was a big part of what happened in New York uh, back in the spring. Now, the good thing you've got going for you now uh, in New York is, you know, so many people have already had it. You have a very high level of community immunity, probably higher than anywhere else in the United States. And so, you know, if you look at the New York state numbers, it's now mostly outside of the New York City area. It's sort of the rest of the state is kind of catching up. Uh, New York City uh, if you look at the hospital utilization and the emergency room data, you, you've actually got lower emergency room visits for respiratory illnesses and influenza-like illness now than in you know any of the previous five years this time of year. So you're actually lower than normal in New York City, uh, I think, because you've got a lot of community immunity to COVID. And because the other factor, which is happening everywhere in the world right now, with very little attention paid to it, uh, there's almost no flu activity this year. And we don't know if that's because the, you know, the policy measures like the masks and the distancing and school closures are somehow more effective for flu than they are for COVID, or if the virus itself has somehow disrupted. We don't really know why it's the case, uh, but it's a remarkable story because remember the experts said we're gonna have this twindemic, flu's gonna hit at the same time as COVID, all the hospitals gonna be overwhelmed. Instead, we've got you know, the mildest flu season since at least 2015. And maybe, you know, we'll see if it doesn't take off at all, maybe uh, the mildest flu season on record. So you've got, you know, really underutilization 
of hospitals in a place like New York City that has relatively little COVID activity because we're not seeing any flu. I, I pulled some numbers last week. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Phil. I'm speaking to Phil Kirpin, syndicated columnist, uh, journalist. And uh, Phil, uh, I, I looked at the initial. Now, now I had someone write. I've had people write into me since to say we're not really testing for flu the way that we normally do. And to that, I say, OK, because I, I am asking, you know, sometimes people are asking a question and they're really trying to push a conclusion. I'm actually asking the question, but I, I pose to to the audience. I said, you know, the initial data on the CDC website for the first week of December and and I think it was it was low for what they actually had for COVID. So this was initial data. So the numbers are clearly going to go up. And, you know, maybe it went from, you know, maybe might might even go up by a factor of 10, let's say. Right. I mean, it could go up substantially. But the initial data said that they had something like uh, 2000 plus COVID deaths in the first week of December that were officially COVID, you know, meaning that this is the what they had three, three from the flu. Now. I, I could understand more COVID. I could, under, but there's clearly something going on here. I mean, you mentioned some of the, the possibilities. There's no way that you have almost a factor of a thousand more COVID deaths than you do flu deaths, given what we would see in a normal flu season. That's not possible. Well, uh, you know, flu peaks ha- are more often in January and February than they are in November and December. Sometimes you have, you know, earlier flu seasons. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, flu is not here yet. It's still coming. That might be true, but we've never seen levels this low. We've never seen levels this low. And if you look at the CDC flu testing data, it's down about 95%, 90, you know, 95 to almost 100% some weeks. We've had like 98% reduction from the five-year average. Uh, and it's not that we're not testing. The flu tests are actually higher than the five-year average, and they're actually at a record high of the number of flu tests that the CDC tracks. And the CDC only tracks clinical labs and public health labs, so they don't track, you know, like the rapid tests in a doctor's office. That's not in the stats. So they only have thousands of tests. They don't have millions of tests. Uh, but it's still, uh, it indicates that I, I think one of three things is going on, Buck. Either uh, we've got the public health measures that are being implemented for some reason are very effective at stopping flu, even though they don't seem to be. They're not effective at stopping COVID, right? Go ahead. Right. So that's a little hard to believe, although a lot of people have been saying that. Or Somehow the COVID virus itself disrupts the flu virus, which is possible. There's a phenomenon called viral interference. And this was actually how swine flu ended back in 2009. The rhinovirus came in and it sort of just knocked it out. You know, people got that instead and it sort of knocked it out. And there was some hope. There was actually an article, you know, months ago, hoping that flu season would come in and sort of disrupt COVID. That definitely didn't happen, but maybe the opposite happened. Maybe COVID disrupted flu. And, you know, once you get COVID, you're mucus buildup blocks flu or some mechanism causes viral interference or the third possibility is that we've got some sort of a data artifact where maybe you know we're getting so many false positives for covid that people get flu they test false positive it goes into the stats as a covid uh case instead of a flu case uh, maybe uh there's a timing issue where even though we have lots of flu tests people are only taking the flu test after they get a negative COVID test back, and by then flu is not detectable anymore. Some people have suggested that. So there basically there are three possibilities, uh, in my judgment. Either the policies are actually stopping flu somehow, uh, there's actual viral interference, or we've got some sort of a data artifact based on the sequence and the way that we're doing the testing uh, that's causing the flu cases to be mischaracterized as COVID. So it's gotta be one of those three things. I'm not sure which it is or if it's a combination. 
but I, I wish there were a lot more curiosity about this, uh, you know, among the media and about, you know, among the public health officials, because it's a pretty remarkable uh, phenomenon. What we're seeing. Talk, right talk to me about this. And we're speaking to Phil Kirpin. Uh, he is the president of American Commitment and he's a syndicated columnist. Phil, the, I, I see all these charts, and I've, I've looked at some of the data myself, and they show mask mandates going into place on a timeline. And, the, you know, for, for a state, right, whether it's California or Hawaii or New York or wherever, mask mandate goes into effect. And then you have countless charts where you just give it time and the cases just skyrocket after the mandate goes into effect. What can we just tell from the numbers about this as a policy? Can can we draw any conclusions or you or, or can you draw any conclusions from what we're seeing? Uh, I don't think masks have any effect on uh, mask mandates. Uh, and, you know, we should we should differentiate the two mask mandates and masks are not necessarily synonymous because just because a mandates in an area doesn't mean everyone's wearing them or wearing them properly or handling them properly and so forth. You know, the reason historically uh, we've never recommended masks outside of medical settings is it's actually really hard to use a mask properly to make sure you never touch the outside to remove it and carefully and throw it out or wash it without ever touching the outside and you know that's why we've never recommended them in non-medical settings because even if they work sort of conceptually in sort of a lab test we never had confidence that people would use them correctly in a way that actually could be beneficial and i think that based on the data that I'm seeing, you know, it's sort of, you could go either way on whether they work in an idealized setting. There is a lot of lab data showing that they probably would be beneficial if they were used sort of perfectly. Uh, but in practice, I don't see any evidence that they've been beneficial at all. And, you know, the, there's, there's cherry picking that goes on. And the CDC had a couple of very low quality studies looking at Arizona and Kansas, where they essentially just cherry picked their end dates uh, and their comparators and they said, look, masks to the reason we saw a decline. And, if, you know, if you look at kind of what's happened seasonally, you have you have essentially identical patterns in places with and without mask mandates if they've got the same geography and the same uh, sort of time of year. And so I don't think that they make a difference one way or the other. You could argue some have suggested they may actually be harmful. The reason that the Nordic states have all avoided the mask mandates, uh, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and so forth, is they say, look, you know, the mask doesn't really do that much, especially the way a typical person handles it, who's not well trained the way a surgeon would be and so forth. But if you tell people that the mask protects you, uh, then suddenly they're going to stand right next to each other for prolonged periods of time with masks on, and they're going to think they don't need to keep their distance. And oh, and, and I'm sure people that have mild COVID. They might go out of the house even if they're feeling sick because they right. have a mask on. And so the you know a false belief that a mask will protect you might actually put you at more risk. This is what I've been saying. You're going to have people that say, well, maybe I got COVID, but my symptoms aren't that bad, and I'm wearing a mask, so I'm good to go. It's like, no, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. But I, I'm, I could guarantee that's been happening all over the country, all over the world. Phil, look, I appreciate that you're willing to take a take a look at the data here on the numbers and come to conclusions that, you know, aren't right in line with the consensus. I feel like this is the brainwashing that has gone on on this issue is unlike anything else I've ever seen in my life. I just want to give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, probably the most frightening thing of the past year, Buck, has been the extent to which uh, people not only accepted all of these various arbitrary government decrees, but demanded them and welcomed them and cheered them on. And uh, I think the extent to which a large portion of the public uh, supports the heavy-handed you know, government policy response is probably the most frightening uh, takeaway of this whole thing. And, uh, 
you know, it means we could we could see this again every time there's a disease. So I, I am I am concerned about that, and I share your, uh, uh, you know, I share your sentiments on that. Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. Phil, really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right, have a good one. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I think the party is uncertain of the course that we're going to take going forward. Uh, The principles that have long been uh, the hallmark of of my party are very much in question, which is, do we believe in balancing the budget? Uh, Do we believe in standing up to people like Kim Jong-un and uh, and Vladimir Putin? Are we committed to the principle that character counts? These are all things that I think we're going to have to decide over the coming years. I can tell you this much. Mitt Romney is not going to be the leader of the Republican Party. That's for damn sure. Mitt Romney is a Democrat now. Not going to forget that one anytime soon. He should be ashamed of his vote for the president to be removed during that sham impeachment An impeachment about a president having a phone call where he asked about what we know is an entirely legitimate issue. Biden family corruption, which is quite real. There's a federal investigation going on around it. You know, I, they, they may not like that the, the Trumpster was using some bare knuckle politics here, but he was within his rights to do it. It was a fair ask. No action was taken on it anyway. And Mitt Romney voted to have the president removed from office based on that. Now, let, let's not ever forget this. There are a lot of these never Trumpers. There are a lot of these stealth Democrats running around who are now all of a sudden going to be talking about how much they care about protecting life and the pro-life movement. They're going to be talking about the Constitution and limited government and a strong national defense and all these things. They think that we're going to turn the clock back to, you know, 2006 or something. And the Romneyite McCain, you know, McCainian view of the Republican Party is going to be what we go back to. And, and I think that they're in for a rude awakening. It's not going to happen and it should not happen. Uh, we now have a transformed Republican Party, and it should stay aligned with the principles of America first and just reason and rationality in our foreign policy and our domestic policy, support for rule of law, support for law enforcement. Those are things that aren't aren't going away. We're not all going to start watching Milton Friedman lectures again and act like this is 1987. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had been saying, by my calculation, sometime by the end of March, the beginning of April, that the normal healthy man and woman in the street who has no underlying conditions would likely get it. At the end of the day, the real bottom line is, when do you get the majority, the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated so you can get that umbrella of herd immunity. And I believe if we're efficient about it and we convince people to get vaccinated, we can accomplish that by the end of the second quarter of 2021, namely by the end of the uh, late spring, early summer. They're going to take as many as many uh, months of your life from you as they can until they realize they no longer have that power. I mean, Fauci is, I think, making that quite clear. He's just effectively telling you that by uh, by June, let's say, you know, April, May, March, June, July. Oh, sorry. Feb- January, February, March, April, May, June. So by the end of the second quarter, by this summer, you'll have most people who, who are going to get vaccinated, vaccinated. 
Do you think that that means that all of a sudden the Fauciites and the, the rest of the lockdowners are going to say, you know what? Go live your life, folks. Go travel. Go be around people. Go socialize again. No. They're going to say, we can't. We can't know yet. There's virus still out there. The virus is still out there. You'll say, yeah, but there are a lot of viruses still out there. And, you know, life is short. How much more of this are we supposed to take? And what you see is we, we have a population, unfortunately, in America. I think we've all gotten so used to everything on demand, delicious food, excellent medical care, you know, super comfortable accommodations, even for people who aren't wealthy by any American standard. We've gotten used to all this and we, we all just expect that we're going to live, you know, deep into our 80s, maybe into our 90s or even even to triple digits. And, and our belief is that we are all guaranteed that, especially if we listen to the Fauci's of the world. That's just not true. It's just not true. And a lot of people want to live their lives as though they recognize that that is not true, that there are no guarantees here. But what we've seen is the public, unfortunately, hand off to the Fauci's of the world the right to determine for them what acceptable risk risk is here. And, and as long as you are not able to be the arbiter of your own personal risk or risk for your family, there will be bureaucrats making those calls for you. And that's what we see going on. So let's assume let, let's play this out for a second. Fauci says that we'll have herd immunity effectively by June, um, herd immunity by June. And you would think that at that point we should be having big celebrations and everyone should be able to go out and do what they want to do. Uh, that's just not true. It's just not true. Uh, they're going to say, well, we can't take that risk. We have to wait and make sure that we have a period here of, of almost no COVID cases. Yeah, they'll relax on some of the lockdown policies, but they're still going to probably have a prohibitions on, on large gatherings. You know, you're not going to be able to have a wedding in a lot of states with 150 people in July, even if we're at herd immunity in June. Because they're just they're going to say, sorry, no risk, not allowed, not allowed. They're, they're going to just hold on. They're going to grip with their grubby little fingers, they're going to grip the bureaucrats and the apparatus and the Democrats and the Biden apparatchiks. They're going to hold on to this power with everything they've got and the Cuomos and the Newsoms and all the rest of them because they really want you all to submit. They want us to be begging to get some normalcy, some freedom back so that then we forget, right? There's almost like a hostage, uh, hostage vibe here where when the hostage taker you know, finally gives you a, a slice of cold pizza or something after they've held you for a few days and you're starving. You're thankful to your hostage taker. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Mr. Hostage taker. You know, thank you, terrorist. You're going to finally let me have like something to eat. You're going to you're going to let me go to the bathroom now. or You're going to you're going to give me some water. It's been two days. Oh, my gosh. You know, this this happens. This is a a psychological response that you'll have to high stress situations. And I think they're counting on that. I think their belief is that whenever they begin to give us back our basic rights to live our lives, we'll be so beaten down at that point and so frustrated and so tired of all of this that just anything to make it stop will be our, our mentality. And that means that we won't question them. We won't bring up any of this. We'll just say, sure, anything to make it stop. Um, and Fauci is out there telling everyone to get vaccinated. How's that going to go? Play seven. 
You have said you would get vaccinated publicly, Dr. Fauci. Any update on when? You know, I don't. I mean, I'm going to wait to see. We're getting a shipment, uh, maybe already have a shipment here on the NIH campus. I would, as soon as my turn comes up, which likely will be very soon, I'm going to be available to get vaccinated publicly so that people can see that I feel strongly that this is something we should do. And hopefully that will encourage many more people to get vaccinated. They're going to say that as long as they think there's still people that have to get vaccinated, even those who have been vaccinated don't get to live their lives in greater freedom. That becomes the coercive mechanism. That then becomes, sorry, I know you did your part. You've listened to Fouch all along. You've worn the masks. You've, you've social distanced. You, you lost your business. You shut down. You've gone bankrupt. You, de- you did everything that Fouch told you. And you think, okay, well, I got vaccinated. Now I should be good to go, right? Now I don't have to worry anymore. And Fouch is there to say, well, maybe you got vaccinated. But there are a lot of millions of other people that didn't get vaccinated. And let, let's all understand this. If we can just get nursing homes vaccinated across the country by the numbers, this is not this is not just a guess by the numbers, the monthly death rate should should drop in half. By the by the time. So if we get by the end of December, if nursing homes uh, are all vaccinated across the country, which would be pretty ambitious, that may not happen. But let's say by by, you know, mid January, late January. All the nursing homes have had all their residents vaccinated against this. You should you should see a 50 percent or more decline in mortality from the virus. Fifty percent on a monthly basis. And that's based on what we've already that's that's on months and 50 percent of deaths up to this point. Have been nursing home residents, 50 percent of them up to this point have been nursing home residents. So. You could even make a case that should be once you get all the nursing homes vaccinated, it might even be a larger number than 50 percent. But nonetheless, when do we actually get to uh, live our lives again? When do we get to stop wearing these dumb masks all the time? I hate them. I hate it. I, I think it's a it's submission to popular panic and to the will of the mob. I have to wear a mask outside now in New York City. This is idiotic. There's no science to back that up. Don't you know, I'm not going to listen to these libs and they pull the science card. There's no science that says you got to wear a mask outside. Think about it this way. People have been eating in New York City restaurants for months now, and they have this test and trace program, which is pretty much a joke. But, you know, they do some testing and tracing. And think about it this way. They have looked at the data and told you that when people sit in an enclosed space in a restaurant with no mask, which is what happens when you're eating, that's 1% of the spread. But we are all supposed to believe, we are all supposed to think that outdoors there's a lot of spread happening? That outdoors you should be wearing a mask? Based on what? Where is the data to suggest that outdoor mask wearing is, is intelligent and that people should be doing this? Where is it? Oh, it's a solidarity thing. It's a political thing. Notice the moment that the science does not clearly does not support one of their positions. The conversation suddenly shifts the moment that they can't just yell science at the top of their lungs and all of us go, oh, okay. well, if it's what the science says, what do they do? They just shift and say, no, now it's actually about politics. 
Now it's about something else. Now there are other considerations that we're all supposed to have. Oh, isn't that, isn't that uh, convenient? Uh, convenient indeed. And as for the vaccine itself, I have concerns here from what I'm reading in some of the analyses of the data. Not that the vaccine does not work. I think the vaccine seems to work quite well. But they they're telling. Well, here, here, here's what Fauci is saying about this. Play six. And we did not see any severe adverse events. There is reactogenicity, which really means the typical things that you get sore arm, some muscle aches, maybe a little malaise, sometimes a fever. It usually doesn't last any more than 24 to 36 hours. But with regard to severe adverse events, that's the reason why when you go from tens of thousands of people to now 2.9 million doses have been shipped to about 145 locations today. So when you get that many people, you want to make sure you keep a heads up for the occurrence of any adverse events that you did not see in the trial. He's saying that you know, they they may learn some stuff here as people are getting this vaccination about the reactivity, I think is what he called it. Uh, there were pl- there were people who got fevers, who got, uh, you know, extreme fatigue, things like that from taking the vaccine. And, you know, they they also in the tests that that Pfizer did, um, they mostly I think it was five to 10 percent of the people were over 60 in the Pfizer. So most of the people who got the vaccine in the Pfizer trial were younger, healthier people. That's also an interesting. Well, we'll see how this plays out, because if you're 30 years old, why you're going to get this vaccine in six months when everyone who's at high risk already has gotten it? Think about this. Think about the way this will be rolled out. You're going to have people that are very uh, that the the people that are at high risk. We're going to get it first. And so over time, you'll have fewer and fewer People who are really incentivized because, well, if ever in the senior homes, you know, if I didn't have to worry about people over 50 getting covid, really over 65 getting covid, I wouldn't worry about this really at all. It's it's less dangerous to people under 50. It's less dangerous than a bad seasonal flu. That's just a fact. So if we get the people in the high risk category vaccinated, why is the expectation uh, beyond that? Supposed to be that everyone what I mean, are we going to are we going to not achieve herd immunity? And even when five year olds haven't been vaccinated, there'd be a lot of parents are going to say, look, I'm not sticking this thing in my kid. There's no long term trial that's been done on this. And kids are at no risk. So why should and kids can barely, if ever, spread it to people who are older than them. So do kids have to get it, too? You know, when they talk about herd immunity, I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion. What is that even? It's a concept. What does that even mean in practice? But see, they don't want you to ask any of these questions. They don't want you to think about this. They just want you to jab the needle in your arm, shut up, wear that mask, do what you're told. America is not the not the give me liberty or give me death country that we thought we were. We've learned that. It's been very unfortunate. It's been very sad. Although I I am pleased every time I see some business owner who tells one of these health bureaucrats to go stuff it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
first off, look, it's our responsibility. Wear your mask, social distance, wash your hands. Um, you know, be careful. I mean, that's what we have to do. If you've been around somebody or you tested positive, uh, like I did, you know, a month or so ago, you got you to quarantine, which I did. Uh, so that's what you have to do. But we got to get this economy going. Look at this. But go back, Steve. These the states that have the bad unemployment, that's what they're doing. They keep shutting these things down. How can you, how can people put food on the table yeah. if they don't have a job? And, they, and, you know, these guys like Cuomo, they don't care. They're doing fine. He's always done fine. He, it's everybody else that is, he's hurting the poorest families in, in his state. We're not going to do that in Florida. Florida is showing that this stuff that they've made us all do, these lockdowns and these extreme responses, all this, uh, it's unnecessary. Why have all these mandates when Florida is doing better than a place like New York is doing right now or better than a place like California is doing overall without all the mandates? Right. Or rather, they have the mandates and Florida does not. So what advantage is there of them? The data does not support it. But then what you see, and this is what Senator Rick Scott brings up here, uh, the people that are making these uh, these decisions, the people that are saying these things, they are not themselves suffering. Governor Cuomo hasn't missed a paycheck. Governor Newsom hasn't missed a paycheck. These are wealthy people who continue to really, in many ways, grow wealthier as their power increases. It just means that they'll have more opportunities to cash in on their political uh, on their on their political power down the line. The accumulation of this will just mean that, you know, they're they're bigger names now. They are known more in, in national level circles. So all the influence peddling, all the stuff, all the ways they'll be able to monetize this period, those continue for them. But we were never all in this together. Uh, we were never all in this together. There were some people who are actually suffering terribly economically from this. They're watching their businesses be destroyed. They're going bankrupt. They're, they're having a horrible time of it. And there are other people who very clearly are able to just continue on as is and not suffer any particular consequences from this. Right? It's a lock, lockdown for them just means work from home. For a lot of people, it's a dream come true. Look, I'm sitting here telling you right now, I, I am perfectly happy to not have to go to a formal radio studio anymore. There's no advantage for me in that. Right now, I live in New York City and I have to go into a TV studio every day and I have to, you know, Inter- interact in the outside world in New York. So I'm subjected to a lot of the covid nonsense as well as the covid risks. Uh, but for for tons of people, I mean, if you live in a big house in the suburbs and, you know, this has just meant you've really gotten used to ordering, you know, your your groceries from Amazon and having Uber Eats, you know, deliver Chinese food to you. That's all this is really meant for them. And, you know, you don't get to go to big parties for a while. Oh, well, you know, oh, well. So some people have had a terrible time of this and others have not. And the media is overwhelmingly representative of the people that have actually thrived financially and economically during the pandemic. I've done quite well while all of this was happening. That's that's the truth. You know, the media has been part of this class that has benefited from it uh, in many ways. So I, I just I continue to, to see this disconnect and this lack of appreciation in the media for the, for the people out there who are just saying, you know, uh, what am I supposed to do here? You know, making a decision that ruins someone's business, that bankrupts their family, that should not be taken lightly. And it should it, it should not be something the government is even able to do. And they've been doing it to millions of people across the country.
and the speak truth to power. Oh, we're the guardians of the Republic journos out there. They haven't cared about this. They haven't been doing all they can to raise this plight to public consciousness. No, they're they're saying, wear your mask. Shut up. You know, it's not about getting a haircut. Remember when they used to say that it was just because people wanted haircuts. Thanks for listening to the Bus, Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The good news is that people have had enough, enough with the mask shaming, enough with the uh, tyrannical health inspectors. I was trying to track down where this was. This is already going viral on social media. And it's a guy. And I'll, I'll just tell you, he's wearing some pretty tight, pant, uh, tight shorts, which is getting a lot of attention. He's wearing some very tight shorts and uh, he definitely could use a little more, a little more space in them to, to kind of let him relax a little bit. Because he goes up to a woman, and it looks like they're in a, a big uh, grocery store, department store, or something like, not a department store, a grocery store or a big box store of some kind. And this is a woman, and, and she's being approached by this guy because she's not, uh-oh, she's not wearing a mask. And here's how the exchange goes. Play it. Put your mask on. Get away from me, Put it please. on. Does it bother anybody else that she doesn't have to wear a mask that we all do? Just go away. Stay six feet away from me, then. No. Get away from me. No. Yeah, Please get away from me right now. No. You don't know why. You don't need to come near me. She has it on her damn hand. Get away from me. Walk away from me, sir. Please get away from me. You don't care. Leave me alone. She put she Stay six feet away from me then. Get out of here. I know who you voted for. <laughs> That's my favorite. My favorite is the letter. Yeah, I know who you voted for. Yeah, she does. Guy's clearly a Biden voter because this is so political for these people. You, you know, you want to talk about science, want to talk about numbers. You know, the chances are that this guy who's wearing a mask, who's in this very large store uh, that walks past this, this woman who isn't, you know, isn't at that moment wearing a mask. The chance that that he is going to get infected with COVID-19 from this kind of an encounter is effectively zero. It's not it's not like a maybe it's not. Oh, it's pretty much zero. You know, it, it's as close to zero as we can get in any realistic sense of, of science and data and, and probability. But he wants to start a big thing. He wants to chase her around and demand that she wear a mask. And he said something I think was very telling, too. It was we all have to wear a mask. So she has to as well. There's a lot of that in all this, too. There's a lot of we all have to suffer in this together instead of saying, hmm, maybe this person's on to something. Maybe some of this is dumb. and There's no need for us to really be doing it. No, that's that's not the that's not the approach. That's not the view that is taken here. Uh, so this guy is indicative. I, I had someone approach me over the summer. Do you know how many cases there were in New York City this summer? Like none. There were a few hundred. There's 20 million people in New York State. There were like a few hundred COVID cases at any time in New York. And I had some guy get up in my face. I told him to call the health authorities. I was like, what, what is wrong with you? I'm not sick. And the chance of me being sick is at, at that point in the summertime was was like one in a million. And you're going to harass me over this just just because people can't think for themselves. This is what you see. There's so many weak willed, weak minded individuals out there unable to control their anxiety and their fear. 
They just believe whatever the experts will tell them. The experts. Any intelligent person who, who is who is thoughtful and has good judgment knows that in most areas of of critical decision making in, in public life or just life in general, you can find experts who tell you one thing and you'll find experts who tell you another thing. That's just the way it is. It's just the way it goes. But no, they, they think this appeal to the experts. All oh, the experts told me this thing. I'm so focused on what the experts say. That means that it shuts down all discussion. That means that there's no longer any reason whatsoever for us to ask any questions about this. I like when people ask questions. I like when they push back. I expect it. I think it's American. I would even go to that place. I'd go to that extent. And so I don't know where that store was. And this is a guy, uh, Nick, the Greek restaurant. I can't I don't know if it's in California or New York. I think it's in California. uh, This this exchange, this one is also going viral today. Here's a guy who's just losing it with these these little bureaucrat health inspectors who show up and they're, you know, issuing citations and fines. For this musical chairs game of, oh, we have new COVID restrictions now. Oh, got to listen to the new COVID restrictions. Here's how here's how that went. And we're going to play a a, a good chunk of this for you. Producer Mark, hit it. I followed the rules. I continue to follow the rules. And you guys still, time after time, are giving me citations. Telling me I have to close my business. What about my employees? You're not following the rules. I am following the rules. My tables are inside. Just because the health department has a whole process to go through that takes however long that takes, I have to close my business for that time? Who's going to, are you going to pay my rent? Are you going to pay my rent? I chose to protest by putting my tables outside and I reiterate again, I never served one single person outside. I did all takeout food and delivery to what exactly I was supposed to be doing. That's exactly what I did. I did not break any, and there's no even a law, I did not break any rule. There, there is a law that you're breaking right now by operating without a permit. I, because you guys... Put this closure on the restaurant. Right. You, so you, you let, guys let, let's pause here for a second. Let's pause here for a second. So they change the rules constantly, and then they harass people that are trying to comply with the rules, make their lives harder, and, and then there's no, like, good faith exception here to, okay, you were trying to comply. We're not going to be paying the ass bureaucrats. Uh, we're, we're actually going to allow you to live your life and to try to make a living and try to pay your bills and try to feed yourself. There, there's none of that. No, that, that's, that's not allowed. No, instead, it's we're writing you up. You're not obeying the rules. Another citation here. Here you go. The rules keep changing. The rules are bull. The rules are based on the whim of tyrants. He, I, I like this guy. He keeps digging it. He's saying, look, I'm doing the stuff you're saying. Now they want him. It sounds like they want him to wait for them to check to see if he's done the new thing they've told him to do before he can serve food again. What kind of idiocy is this? Go back, play more. Let's hear it. Your own rule, and you're giving guys citation for your own rule that's created. It's not by law that you cannot sit outside and eat. That's not a law. That's what it's an order that was given. Okay. So you cannot give me a closure citation based on that. It's already been ordered. I'm not issuing a closure. I'm saying. You, are you, what are you not issuing a closure? You guys close. You're not asking to close me. I'm not issuing the citation. The, the closure. The, the restaurant is already closed. The permit has been. Suspended. However, your refusal to close 
warrants a Because what am I going to do with my clothes? Are you going to pay my rent? No, no. All we need okay, to do so if you're not going to pay my rent, I'm not closing. We need to reopen. If you're not going to pay my I told you already. We could have reopened today. We could be open right now. However, you should give me a citation and tell me I can open. Yeah, well, we've, we've missed those steps. The steps that you need to take to make sure that you can open your business. You couldn't have reopened today. You could have reopened How? already. How? The steps are listed in the report that was Which I did. I called the guy. The guy I spoke to on the phone was a supervisor. Because he made a mistake? That was on me. He made a mistake. I reported on my phone what he said. Yes, he did. He told me if I put it in writing to him on an email that I will follow the rules and I will not put my tables for outside. Well, you're, you're, kinda, you're getting the gist, aren't you? Bunch of bureaucrats paid with your tax dollars harassing this guy. What, what has he done wrong? You know, he's not serving rotten food to people and getting them sick. He's providing a service that the public wants. He's trying to feed his family by feeding the public. He's complying with all these rules, but they don't they, they feel like he did the steps and didn't, you know, check with them or something. I mean, and they're giving him a citation. They can't just show up, and say, hey, man, look, we know this is a tough time. We know that, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. Could you just please? Our job is to check in and we're trying to, you know, keep people safe here. Just do these things and don't worry about it. We're, we're not going to we're not going to write you up or anything. What else Just please, you know, please get it. No, of course not. That would be reasonable. Right? And, and, and even that's annoying. I was like, that's not even reasonable. But at least that's that, that's making some effort to be decent human beings under the circumstances. At least that's making some overture to sanity. And, and normalcy and reasonableness. But no, these bureaucrats, they're on a total power trip. They get paid. They don't care. They're still they're going to be ordering, uh, you know, delivery from any number of, of play, you know, seamless or DoorDash or whatever from restaurants like this guy. And, you know, they feel like, well, one less restaurant. Who cares? We got plenty to choose from. No, no sympathy. No decency. This is what we're up against all across the country. Little armies of bureaucrats, little armies of imbeciles running around, enacting the will of tyrants like Cuomo and Newsom and Whitmer and Murphy and Wolf. You know, just go down the list. Idiots who are ruining businesses, who are ruining people's lives over what? Oh, to protect us. They're not protecting you from COVID. It's not working. All these rules they have, it doesn't work. It doesn't get it done. They can pretend otherwise, but we all see the data. We see the mandates. We can look at the timelines. It is not working. So what do they do? More of it. This is really a lesson in bureaucracy. This is really a lesson in why we have limited government, why we want to limit the government's power to inflict itself upon you. We're getting a very real schooling in that right now for people that are wondering. And, and, you know, we used to think of, oh, the the big threat is the federal government and the states will protect us. Not if you live in a blue tyrant state like New York or California. And even those of you who live in Texas who are listening to this, Texas hasn't been great on COVID. It's just been okay. You know, Florida is really the model to pursue here. And Governor DeSantis has been nothing but vilified by the media, as you know. He is successful in how he's handled this, and they hate him for being successful. That has been the approach. That, that's the way the media 
handles this stuff. That's what they do. I feel terrible for uh, the owner of you know Nick Nick the Greek Diner. I feel terrible for the woman who has some stranger, and we had to cut it out. I mean, he was cursing at her, but until until we realize that our freedom is not coming back unless we fight for it, they will continue this nonsense. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Senator Bernie Sanders has said he doesn't think the progressive movement has a big enough seat at the table with the Biden team. Do you agree with him? I do. Uh, And this is, you know, what we have been uh, saying and asking for. Um, We worked diligently in in trying to make sure that the people understood that it was important for us to get rid of uh, Trump, but to have someone who was going to be partner with us in in governing for progress in our country. uh, And we continue to be hopeful in having that partnership as we govern on behalf of our country. Are you unhappy with any of his current picks? I mean, holistically, I am not. Uh, I think that um, they have been uh, quite diligent uh, in uh, putting together um, a really well thought out transition team. Not progressive enough. I know that's a lot of Ilhan Omar you're hearing for one day, but I thought you should you should know that there's this complaint going on from the left uh, of the Democrat Party or the left wing, the furthest left wing, of the Democrat Party that Biden is not yet hearing their voices. Let let me tell you, here's what I think is happening. I think that they are setting this up in the early stages so that they can present it. They're going to present this as, oh, it's just good old blue-collar Joe. You know, Joe Biden's not a socialist. Joe Biden's not a radical. You don't have to worry about good old Joe, right? That's going to be the way that they set this whole thing up. That's going to be the way that they're presenting this to the public. And then as soon as they uh, go into the actual implementation phase of a Biden, and I know, look, maybe it doesn't happen. But I mean, I'd ask any of you who are who are at this point uh, still unwilling to unwilling to even talk about that or don't want to hear about it. What what the percentage, what the likelihood is that it's not going to be a Biden administration. I'm really curious. I mean, I want to know what people think. They believe that it's. It's going to it's 50 50 still. What do they think? Because um, I think it's about 99, 99 to one. Um, that doesn't mean zero, but it means it's about 99 to one. So, uh, you know, you got about a one in a hundred shot here of this thing turning around at best, at best. And in the meantime, they're mobilizing, they're moving, they're setting people up, they're putting people in place. They're going forward with this so we can be as intransigent as we want, they're going to be swearing this guy that the system is going to swear this guy in on on January 20th. That's going to happen. And I I think that they're trying to present this as a uh, moderate administration. I think they're trying to present this as, oh, you know, good old Joe. But it'll be just like the Obama administration. Remember the Obama administration? You had this guy who came in and he was supposed to be Obama was supposed to be a great uniter. He was going to heal the country. He was going to stop the rise of the seas and, you know, all this really pompous rhetoric around all the great things Obama's going to do. And then you had a pretty dogmatic, you know, liberal leftist, the most left wing guy in the United States Senate before he became the president, pushing as far as he could towards socialized medicine. And that's not the same thing as saying Obamacare is socialized medicine, but pushing as far as he conceivably could in that direction and get away with it. 
they wanted amnesty. They weren't able to get it at that point in time. But, you know, when you talk about the the left wing policy items, the left wing agenda items that Ilhan Omar wants, Biden is going to be pretty close to where they are on a lot of this stuff. Fifteen dollar minimum wage. Biden administration is going to want to go for that. Uh, forgiving student debt. I think you're going to have some version of that via executive order, even from Joe Biden. Going to say, all right, we're going to waive debt for everybody who has, you know, less than who has uh, 50,000 of debt, 10,000. They'll come up with some formulation. They'll just wave it away. So I, I don't want anyone to be fooled while they're they want you to believe that Biden is a moderate and a centrist. And I, and I do think at some level he will be boring. But a lot of bureaucrats that push Terrible policies are boring. Doesn't mean that they aren't also a threat. Doesn't mean that they aren't also enormously problematic. And Omar and AOC, their whole game is going to be the the left wing and the Bernie Sanders. It really is still the Sanders wing of the Democrat Party. Their game is going to be telling everybody that they're not, you know, they're not progressive enough in the Biden White House. That they're not pushing hard enough. They're not radical enough. But they know that they're never going to get all the things that they want. And so their role in all of this is to play a be a foil in a sense to Biden to provide him with the, oh, I'm not as crazy as the AOC wing. I'm a moderate. Meanwhile, in reality, Biden's going to be, you know, getting them 75 percent of the way on all these positions that AOC and the, and the far left Democrats want. So that's I think that's going to be a, a perception versus reality gap that we're going to have to be aware of that we're going to have to address. Um, you're, you're, you know you're not going to have the media being honest at all about what's going on with the Biden administration. I and mean, that, that much is, is quite clear. We all are aware of that, right? I mean, that's, that's the understatement of the year. The media is not going to be covering this in any way. that tell, They're not going to tell you anything about the Biden administration. The Biden administration doesn't want you to know. And we we, therefore, are going to be the ones who have to pick up the slack and try to hold them to account and try to speak the truth about what's really going on. And I think you're going to have a, a more left wing Biden administration than a lot of people even right now on the right can can uh, foresee or will publicly say. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com for the roll call reasons. And I'm on Instagram, Buck Sexton. Please follow me there. We got stories up on BuckSexton.com today about the AG bar uh, stepping down and about uh, all the all the things I talk about here on the show. We put news stories up, so go to BuckSexton.com. And with that, let us get to it, shall we? Madeline, uh, kicking. Actually, no. Before we before we get to that, producer Mark, how you doing, buddy? How you feeling? You ready? You ready for the uh, vacation coming up here? I'm very ready. It'll be a nice time to rest and relax a little bit. 
Yeah, I think I think a lot of sleep is going to be what people really need over the uh, vacation. I think that sounds great. Oh yeah, I'm going to spend a lot of it in bed. What's on the, is what's on the the Netflix queue to watch list? Uh, I think uh, my wife and I just agreed we want to watch. There's a Challenger documentary out about the uh, spaceship. Yes, that looked very interesting, and I've had a couple friends tell me uh, that it was really good. So I think that's next up on the docket. That sounds cool. I might actually watch that with the Snow Princess. Yeah, it's uh, it looks. Uh, I saw the preview. It looked really cool, and I and wasn't alive during it, so it'll be kind of a history lesson for me. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, it's amazing when you, when you were in like high school, everyone had cell phones, didn't they? Yes, I got my it's first high, my my first cell phone in middle school. Wow. Yeah. When I was in high school, if you had a cell phone, you were like really baller. You were really cool. You were like yeah. Zach Morris. Yeah, exactly. You had it looked like you were calling in an airstrike in Vietnam or something. It was a long, you know, the, the phones were very different. The StarTac was the was the model, it was a Motorola phone, I remember. And those were the first phones that you saw in really widespread usage that everyone just wanted to have a StarTac. Uh and it's funny cuz now they look like something from ancient times, right? Ever since the advent of smartphones. But I remember I had a StarTac. I think I had one senior year. And you had to be very tight on your cell phone minutes, right? If you used, if you went over, you might have had 100 minutes a month or something. And if you went over, it was like a dollar a minute. You know, this is just this crazy world. Do you ever think about how many minutes you're on the phone anymore? No, not for a this, second. This used to be a thing. I mean, you, you could run up if you called someone long distance or if you called a family member overseas. You could have like a $300 phone call. That was a thing that would happen. You know, it's absolutely insane to think about Isn't that now. Crazy? Yeah. You think about this now. We got Skype. We got all these. You can talk for free all over the place. We have instantaneous communication. That's that's pretty much close to free. Certainly not uh, paying tolls the way you used to. And, you know, it was a common thing. You'd go to you'd go to places and you'd, you'd say, oh, can I use the phone? They'd always say, oh, is it long distance? Long distance didn't mean, hey, are you going to call like Shanghai? I mean, obviously that would count. But it was like, you're not going to call your relatives in Ohio, are you? You know, like you couldn't do that because you're going to run up the tab. So I, I remember uh, Imagine that. this pandemic without cell phones and technology and stuff. Oh, I, I actually think and I, I've, I should bring this up more often. I think that if we didn't live in a time of so much instantaneous gratification, abundance and connectivity, that, that if we couldn't have people doing Zoom calls from their couch ordering from a hundred different online restaurants, having anything they want delivered to their front door by Amazon. You know, if we didn't have all that, I think that there would be far more pushback on, on what's going on. You know, could you imagine if, if during the lockdown, all you could do was you had like 10 channels of TV to watch. You could only cook for yourself and you had to just, I don't know, read books. Yeah. You only had the books that were on your bookshelf too. There was nothing like a Kindle. That's right. No. no Kindle. No, you know, you couldn't go to a library. Libraries closed. Not that I mean, I don't know who goes to libraries anymore, but I actually uh, have a library membership because you can get free Kindle books and ebooks. Really? Yeah. I was unaware of that. So these are these are the changes that have happened over time. And I, I remember I remember graduating from high school. I think I think the year 2000 was the the absolute pinnacle of uh, I, I think the year 2000 was the pinnacle of human technology convenient communication you could reach people but we weren't all there wasn't the social media stuff we weren't all online all the time you still had to go to things to buy things you know so you could reach somebody you needed to reach but you had to want to reach them 
And there wasn't even really the text message was around, but it wasn't wasn't uh, the thing that it is now. I know a lot of people that don't want to respond to voicemails or even talk on the phone. They'll just respond to text. Oh, yeah. If somebody calls me, I'm like, why are you calling me? Just text me. Yeah. Texting is part of this part of this generation. You and these 20 something youngins. I swear you whippersnappers. I swear it's crazy. I'm pushing 30 now, Buck. Let's not go crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, you're actually married, too, so there's that. Exactly. All right, let's get to it. Madeline writes, Hello, Buck and Producer Mark. Buck, you got to get on this air fryer thing. Go get one now. I live out in a remote place with my extended family. This has been the best thing ever to hit the kitchen. Easy cooking and cleanup. We have three now. You're eating healthier without sacrificing taste like like you are eating healthier. They make smaller ones for one or two people as well. I listen to your show almost every day. Appreciate the information. Shields up, shields high, hold the line, lock and loaded, whatever else you dudes say. Uh, Well, thank you, Madeline. And yes, those are some of our favorite phrases. So, Mark, when you use the air fryer, do you have to like, do you have to oil or salt up the food or do you just put it in? Um, It depends on the recipe you have. Sometimes you'll spray like a little cooking spray in the thing just so nothing sticks. But no, you don't really have to. And obviously, you see, you know, if you're making chicken, season it like you normally would. You can use, you can do chicken in the air fryer. Yeah, you can do anything in the air fryer. I told does you, I take, made, you know, chicken cutlets. I made chicken cutlets in the air fryer. Yeah, you just have to clean it, it afterwards. Does it take a really long time to, uh, to cook? No, I think it's actually a little less than the oven would be, because wow. you're cooking from all directions. So I got to tell you, the Snow Princess. I may get her. Uh, I may get her a gift that's similar to an air fryer. I don't want to say it on air because then it won't be a surprise for her. But I'm worried that she'll use it to make delicious things that will make me even chubbier over this winter than I would otherwise be. I don't so. think that's a worry. Yeah. That sounds like a good thing. I Well, I mean, we are kind of heading into this period here where everyone's just going to be hunkering down. You know, I, I hope they don't close. At least, at least with the gym, there's like some hope that I can still fit into my clothing. At least with the gym, there's some hope. But, you know. They're making it hard, making it challenging these days. That's for sure. So uh, we will continue to look at this stuff. All right, Joe. Happy holidays to Buck, Producer Mark, and everyone else responsible for the Freedom Hunt Radio Excellence. Well, you're talking to him. It's Buck and Producer Mark. I was thinking about your discussion of Jill Biden dropping the doctor. It occurs to me that in light of how this election went, perhaps Mrs. Biden should be referred to as a as farce lady. Shields high, thanks for all you do. Well, Joe, points for creativity, man. I don't think anyone's going to necessarily call her farce lady, though. I think that's probably not going to happen. Not going to happen. Did you did you call did you go to like a, one of those, you know, kind of hippy dippy schools, Mark, where you called your your teachers by their first names? Like college or high school? High school. Uh, no, there's some places where they do that. You know, they call teachers by the first name. I'm just like, I don't know about that. I always go with Mr. Ma'am, Sir. You know, that's usually the... Yeah, I would go with Mr. Whoever the teacher is or Mrs. Whoever the teacher is, their name, yeah? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, you know, that's the... I, I have had people tell me that I call them... I've had, I've had women, if you say ma'am to, they, they think it's like an ageist thing. And I feel like you say ma'am to anybody. Yeah, I feel uh, like yeah. that's a respectful way to go. My father-in-law once got really mad at him for calling him Sir. Really mad at me for calling him sir, because he said it. He made it. It made him sound old. Yeah, I've heard that before yeah. too. I, I think it's funny. Occasionally, people will reach out to me and they'll want 
like their son or something will want, uh, you know, a family friend will want career advice or whatever. And I always laugh when they call me sir. I'm like, well, no, 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 no. Like, you call me Buck. We don't do it, sir. Like, it's, but I call it, but in fairness, I call everybody else sir. Yeah, so now that you're almost 40, you're going to start getting called sir. I guess I'm going to start getting called, oh my gosh. I am And the 40. beard gonna, certainly doesn't help. Yeah, I'm going to start getting called sir. I think that's real. All right. Well, let's see here. Bob is up next. What's up, Bob? Hey, Buck, could you help out? A, I'm sorry. You could help out a lot of restaurant owners by publicizing this very simple idea. They should put a sign on the restaurant saying indoor dining is restricted to COVID-19 survivors and those who have been vaccinated for more than two months. The health departments would could have no objections. There are millions of people who have survived COVID and would love to have a dinner out night. Their restaurants would at least relative be relatively full and their livelihoods more secure. Keep up the great work, Buck. So, Bob, I agree with the sentiment here. I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, but, you know, uh, the the truth here is that they will not allow they will not allow it to be um, uh, an honor system. You know, they're not going to say, OK, you claim that you got vaccinated. So you because there will be people who lie about that, obviously. It would be very tempting for a lot of people not to lie about it, who don't believe in all this crap that we're being made to do all the time. So they're not going to give you that ability. They're, they're going to want everyone to mask until everyone is not forced to mask anymore, for example. That's going to be the way this goes. And and so your idea for letting people who have survived COVID have more access to dining, it makes sense from a science and medicine perspective. But remember, this is being pushed by politics. This isn't being pushed by just a sober look at the data and what is factual, what is accurate. There are a lot of political considerations coming into all of this. So that's that's what I would say about the restaurant idea you bring me. But I appreciate you writing, Bob. I, I thank you for sharing your thoughts on this one. We'll continue to try to come up with things. I mean, I do believe that there's going to be some movement. I've said this before, where people who get vaccinated will wear like a yellow you know, wristband or something that's so so that then they will. And you'd say, well, it shouldn't come to that. Yeah. But if you're vaccinated, don't you want to not be harassed in public if you don't want to wear a mask anymore? I mean, sh- shouldn't there be some benefit for people that that at least according to the system and the science are at basically no risk anymore of getting or spreaded COVID, spreading COVID? But maybe other people are going to say even people that oppose these mandates and lockdowns will say, well, we're, we are. We should all be in it together when we are free of it, too. And there shouldn't be some tiered system where some people, you know, can get away with this and, other, and others can't. Uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's very complicated. There's a lot going on here. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. We've got Ken writing in with more roll call here, even with unlimited power. There's one thing that Democrats absolutely cannot and will not do. They will not cut spending. They would rather bankrupt America and blame it on Republicans. Uh, Ken, they they will not cut spending. That's true. I I think that we've got to be honest about this, this reality that the uh, the chance of Democrats getting really bullied or pushed around at all based on spending arguments. uh, I think that's going to that's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to convince Democrats now after. Look, Trump spent a lot of money 
And we, we, we have entered a period here where the GOP isn't about limiting government spending so much as it's doing the spending that they want to do. And that's just a, that's just an honest assessment of it. I mean, we, we can try to talk around this as much as we want. We can try to get into other things. But the GOP, at the end of the day, has spent so much money and has, has spent so many trillions above even the expected uh, deficit this year that we're just we're not going to make any headway on this one. We're not going to make any progress attacking the Democrats on being big spenders. So, yeah. And that's that's what we're facing here. And and as for bankrupting America, I mean, my, my concern about where the, the country's finances are going is that we let's say we get past this covid thing. And then everyone realizes as we're getting closer to getting out of it, that there is a tremendous amount of financial duress that has not yet been worked out. There is a lot of there are a lot of people out there who you would think uh, you would think would be able to uh, maybe get get ahead of this and get past this. But you're going to find out, no, actually, landlords even, you know, are going to be so behind because of missed rent payments. Individuals are facing eviction in January, as you know, at large numbers. Well, you know, I know that we think of landlords usually as being able to, to do pretty well. And, you know, landlords are the... Uh, the privileged class, and that's true to an extent, but, you know, if you own property, you're renting it out to people and you haven't been getting those checks, you've been covering that mortgage. Maybe you need that money to pay your bills. So what happens to all this? I, I think there's a lot of financial pain, a lot of dislocation that's coming that people may not really be fully prepared for. Uh, and that could that could be tough. That could really hurt the, the broader economy. Um, what happens to all this accumulated debt? I mean, if the government just continues to try to pay everyone's bills at some point, we've got to assume that that's going to have negative consequences. At some point, just having the government stepping in for a huge chunk of the economy that's been shut down, it's going to have negative impact, going to have negative effect. I think, I think that's where we are. Kyle, next up here. Buck, I completely agree with your take on addressing Jill Biden as doctor. I'm married to someone with a Ph.D. in an actual scientific field from a nationally reputable institution, and I can confirm from her that using the term doctor is relegated to a professional setting, as in something you you're, uh, you address a superior as, as a sign of respect. You add it into your signature block at the end of a work email. Mrs. Biden being addressed as doctor in a casual setting comes off as highly pretentious or something someone with a low sense of of self-worth does to elevate themselves in their own mind. I think I know what Mrs. Biden's PhD stands for piled high and deep. <laughs> Kyle, look at you, you cheeky fellow. You, um, yeah, I, I think that my, my thoughts on this are clear. I, I was on this train. I've been on this train for years. I don't think you should retain titles when you no longer have a certain job. And I even slip up on this sometimes, but I don't think you should be mayor when you're no longer mayor. I don't think you should be congressman or speaker when you're no longer either of those things. And I damn sure don't think that you should be referred to as a doctor when your Ph.D. is like something that you cut off the back of a cereal box. Yay, look at me with my Ph.D. Nah, sorry, not going to cut it. Please go check out BuckSaxon.com today. Uh, we've got our latest posts and stories up there. And also pass the buck, especially as we're going into this new 
year, this new era in our politics. Uh, I think that the more people that know about the Buck Sexton Show, the more folks will have listening. So please spread the word. Until tomorrow, shields high.